Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 20, Champagne Supernova, where we will be looking at Chapters 37 through 38 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Afterglow. As per usual, each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And then we will share a recommended thing of the week. And finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as The Lightning Tree and The Slow Regard of Silent Things. Or B, spoilers just get memory hold, like... A Christmas gift arriving on your doorstep that you accidentally open before someone tells you not to. In the middle of November. And then you pretend that you totally didn't open it before Thanksgiving. We haven't had any kind of experience with that. Not at all. Nope. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Also a word to our community, please be kind to yourself, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. So it is my turn this week to do the recap, and so I've got 45 seconds. Now, fair warning, I bent over backwards to find rhymes, and I cared more about the rhyming aspect than I did actual fidelity to the story. So just fair warning, you'll get a poem that means nothing. <laughs> what? Sometimes the rhymes matter more than the words, so yeah. Um, okay. Just fair warning. You have all been warned thrice. Hear me three times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so many reasons I love you. And there are also so many reasons it's reciprocated in kind. And so many reasons for the audience to vomit. Too bad. Hope you got your buckets. Or your bucket list. Your list of buckets. Inside jokes that we're not going to explain that happened earlier today while we weren't recording. So, let me know when you got your timer ready. That would involve me actually knowing how to use my phone. Wait, what? Got your timer? Now I do. In three, two, one, go. Kvothe tells a tale of a beggar bound for Tinue and the way he fails to gain food. Or a minue. Six camps he visits, five without succor until at the sixth camp he pivots and joins the Diamaru for sure. They invite him to join their traveling chosen family, and with water and wine anoint him into their trust quite gamily. After the story, the boys digest its moral, and despite all the lore, there are grand traditions oral. Where kindness and empathy are their own rewards, for showing dignity and sympathy brings people to accord. Family talk touches Sim's nerves and makes him quite maudlin, so Will helps the conversation swerve into something they can all laud again. 40.55 seconds. No cherries for me. Correct. Darn it. I can think of some rhymes that you didn't, but I'm not going to tell you what they are because that takes the fun away. So with that, I think we're ready to dive into this one. So when I read this chapter this morning, this story that Kvothe tells is really quite touching. And I think it's the secret thesis of this entire series. This is the key to understanding both Patrick Rothfuss's worldview and Kvothe's. And I think this is what actually makes this whole series worthwhile. There's something in this that I think unlocks everything else. And it really helps to sell why we care about these characters. So to start us off, we get our opening, which is Ferenial, where all the roads meet. It's sort of this grand crossroads, except instead of having an inn at the crossroads, there's basically a campground. And we meet our protagonist, who is an old beggar, who thinks that he's no one. He thinks that he doesn't matter. He thinks he doesn't have a name. Or at least he has a name, but he doesn't think it matters at all. 
which is sad and heartbreaking, but it's also something that the old man is going to learn is not the case. It's been so long since anyone has cared what his name is that he's nearly forgotten it. And for a series that is all about the importance of names, we know that that name has power and meaning. So there are five traveling groups at the crossroads that he knows about, and we'll stop by each one of their camps. And then there's a sixth one that makes it all work and that helps to contrast some things about Quoth with the other characters that we know. Just to run through them here real quickly, they are some Shaldish merchants, some Adem mercenaries, a group of Aeturans, some vintage traders, as well as a lone Amir, and then our sixth group is a group of Edimaru. We'll get to each one of these individually as we go through, but just to sort of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about here. And it's that last group that informs how Quoth sees himself and his family and what it means to him to be a member of the Edimaru. And I think this also tells us about what it means to him to be a person. So our protagonist here, this old beggar, has a threadbare robe, no shoes, no pack on his back. He doesn't have a backy-packy, a.k.a. a packy that goes on his backy. Again, we have a lot of um, inside jokes, and this one comes from one of my former co-students at DigiPen. And he said something about his backpack, and then he said something about, you know, the packy that goes on my backy. And ever since... <laughs> He's also the one that ate salad with his bare hands and the one that requested a cheese pizza when we ordered pizza for everyone in my game group. And it turns out that Papa Murphy's only sells them in child sizes. Yes, so we had to get him a child's pizza. I do love this friend, though. Every time we think of him, just smiles all the way around. But yes. A packy for his backy. <laughs> anyway, our beggar's first stop is the fire of some Shaldish merchants. So he asks for a bit of food and a piece of their fire, which seems like he's really just looking for something to sate some of his hunger and a warm place to sleep. He's not asking for a whole lot here. All he wants is just some respite from the road. Now, these Shaldish merchants, of course, fall into certain stereotypes, which Quoth acknowledges, and that they are Shaldish is less important rather than that this particular group asks for payment for any of these things. So I really do like how it breaks out of the story. It has such a Princess Bride vibe to it because it's like, oh, don't worry, they don't die. You looked worried. <laughs> don't worry. The eels don't eat her. And the kid's just like, what? continue the story. <laughs> and here, of course, he notes that, yes, this is a stereotype. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time debating the stereotype. It's not really as important for the story. This is just how it goes. And Willem says... I'll let you finish the story, and then if it still bothers me, we'll talk. Willem is willing to let this see where it goes. He's smart like that. So with that, you know, our beggar decides he should probably look elsewhere. So at the next camp, he comes to find a group of Adem mercenaries. And this is our first time actually seeing them other than just a brief passing mention of a proper noun. Right. I think that that happened in the name of the wind and... There was no real explanation at all given, and it's not like the explanation given here is accurate. It is not accurate, but it does speak to the way people in the world see the Adem, which at least gives us an understanding for what their role is. Here, of course, we meet them as these legendary fighters who are completely silent. It says... The old man knew many stories of the Adem. 
he'd heard that they possess a secret craft called the Lithani. This let them wear their quiet like an armor that would turn a blade or stop an arrow in the air. And they're also strangely twitchy and like they're nervous, like their body language is all on edge and fidgety. And it's interesting because future knowledge, we know that they are probably signing. There is a reason why they seem the way they are that is not what people think. It's unnerving to people who don't understand, certainly. And we also know that they cultivate a bit of a mystique around all of that, too. But this is our first mention of them wearing all red. This is our first mention that they're people that value silence and that use it as a form of martial art, almost. And also the incredible violence with which they can dispatch people. Yeah, the beggar remembers a woman that he met back in Modeg years ago, who was one of the Adem, who slew three guards barehanded after they took her sword and tried to extort favors from her in exchange for its return. Ew, 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 ew. Needless to say, the old man knows that these are not folk to be trifled with, so he nopes out of there. With the ADEM, it does call back to another series that I read when I was a lot younger, and that's The Sword of Truth, and essentially the dominatrix-style women fighters that, I don't know, I just, rereading that when I was older or talking to people who are viewing it from a more feminist view or a more egalitarian view or whatever. I mean, like, I won't kink shame. If there is BDSM, like, that's fine. You know, enjoy what you enjoy. If that does it for you, then that does it for you. But the way that it was fetishized in that particular book was ooky. And there is a contrast, not a stark contrast, but a contrast to be drawn between the way that that was written and the way that the ADIM are written. Because the ADIM are written like martial artists and fighters and respected with skill. And while they are a little bit of a caricature, a fantasy trope, it doesn't feel nearly as ooky. Now, there are some things within the ADIM that are just stupid. We'll get there. Some of the things that just maybe that was um, poorly decided. Man mothers. Yeah, that, that, nip, that. But overall, I think that they are much better portrayed in the future of this book. You know, however many hundreds of pages we have until then. But, ugh. <laughs> so next we go to a group of Aturans who don't really have a stated purpose, but they're standing around a dead donkey lying near a cart and they seem to want to enslave our beggar to have him replace the donkey, which is pretty degrading. And atrocious, and disgusting, and awful, and I'm surprised that Sim didn't speak up at that moment. We'll find out about that more later. So naturally, our beggar does not want to be forced into manual labor, or to be thought of as a donkey replacement, so he runs away, and is pursued, and has to hide in rubbish and fallen leaves. Not that he was ever really clean or looked the best. He was dirty already, but now he's filthy and disheveled. So now, newly bedraggled, or extra bedraggled really more accurately, he finds his way to the fourth camp, which is populated by vintage traders. He's kind of hopeful because there's a saying among the Vints that where six can eat, seven can eat. You know, that's actually a very healthy way of looking at things. He's hoping that'll hold true, but the people there are actually much more scared of him now because they think he looks like a barrow draug. After, of course, being chased around and sent to the four winds and having to hide in the dirt and the leaves and everything, he does look pretty corpse-like. So... No luck with the Vince. His next camp that he stops at, the fifth camp, belongs to a single person, and that is one of the Amir. 
Now we of course get a brief interruption from Will and Sim about whether the Amir were part of the church or the Aturan bureaucracy, which they both agree to settle as a bet afterwards if they'll keep quiet through the rest of the story. Again, more of these fun little interjections. Now, our Amir is armored in bright steel rings, and he's carrying a great sword that's about six feet tall. He's got a tavern of shining white with crimson sleeves from the elbows down, and then his emblem is a black tower wrapped in crimson flame. Andy has tattoos on his hands that make it look like his hands are dripping with blood. It's an ominous feeling, and the old man has mixed emotions. Imagine that this is a stranger that you come across at night in a strange land with the light of a fire, and that's it. I mean, this is someone who's obviously a warrior and someone who also carries massive power within the Empire. He can do literally anything and it will be excused. He could kill in the middle of the street and no one would object. He is literally above the law. So the old man is obviously a little nervous and asks if he can have food or shelter. And the Amir responds that he actually has very little food. He wishes he could help, but his horse will be eating better than he will tonight, and only by a small margin. He's only got a crust of bread and a small rind of cheese, which is barely enough for one person, let alone two. Meanwhile, he needs to keep his strength up because tomorrow he needs to be in a town to stop the trial of an innocent woman. And the beggar asks if maybe he could have a little bit of money so that he could buy some food from the Shaldish people. And the Amir responds that no, he gave away his last coins to a new widower with a hungry child. I have a suspicion that the Amir may be the reason why this man was newly a widower. This is someone who is trying to let the beggar down gently, but it's also a dicey proposition to proceed further. At this point, having believed to have exhausted his options, the old beggar decides that he's probably best just to hit the road now and maybe leave before anybody can take objection to his presence. But on his way out, there's a circle of what he thinks are stones and a very small fire that he hadn't seen before, that didn't stand out. And the people around it call out to him. He's about to just leave, about to pass it by, because he's had so many recent experiences that say stopping will get you nothing. Or worse than nothing, stopping could be fatal. So this surprises him, that someone notices him. So he comes over to answer. He doesn't really know what else to do. And he finds a family of Edimaru. The patriarch of the family invites him over and asks about him, asks him where he's going. Asks him to sit and stay a while. To point something out that I'm not sure that you punctuated at all, the Adimaru have made their camp in a circle of great gray stones. This is how this particular story probably populated inside of Quoth's head that made him want to tell his friends it. I think there's something to that. And it's a story that we'll see here really come to life. This is where it bears fruit. So they've proactively invited him in and then comes the offer of refreshments. So the patriarch says, may I offer you a drink, father? And the beggar replies, a bit of water if you can spare it. And then the patriarch replies, nonsense, you'll have wine. And, and the beggar responds, you are kind, bless you, but water is good enough for me. To which the patriarch replies, then have water and wine each to your desire. So the beggar sees that though the Adimaru do not have much, like when he goes to the water barrel, there's not a whole lot left. They're getting close to the bottom of it, and yet they still insist that he feel free to wash himself, take some to clean his hands and his face, to make himself feel refreshed. To feel human again. I don't know when the last time you didn't really take a shower for more than a day or two, 
But I know that sometimes with your facial hair, if you let it go too long, once we cut it again, you're like, I feel so much better. Absolutely. I think also this is just a moment of pure human grace. There are no gods, no demons, no monsters, angels, any of that. This is just one person showing generosity unasked for to another. Then he asks how he can repay this kindness. And the response actually is pretty telling. The Edema Rue respond, we ask only one thing of you, the one thing that everyone has, and that's a story. What's your story? They also ask, what is your name? He has to stumble over this for a while. No one has asked his name in years. No one has even thought of him by his name. He finally replies that it's Skiop, and he is just absolutely touched by their generosity, and so he agrees, yes, he will share his story with them. The son of the patriarch calls Skiop grandfather, and he smiled at the beggar and sat by his knee. And being called grandfather was too much for the old beggar, and he began to cry softly. There's a lot of little kindnesses in this. There's a lot of natural just respect for another human being another human life, just being willing to listen, to really hear, to care about somebody's name, to care about someone's story. The thing that's fascinating to me is that this family listens to the old man's story, which is not what you would call epic myth. You know, this is not the sort of story that is filled with triumph and wonder and hilarity. This is a series of heartbreaks and tragedies and sad things and yet they listen to it with wonder and respect and awe that they get to hear this person's story and this person's story matters deeply to them. Even the Edimaru, who know all the stories in the world, could do nothing but listen and wonder. And they're all entranced and at the end of the story they kind of wake up and shake off that dream state that you get when you are being told a story. It's a feeling that I get when I listen to audiobooks on regular speed. It is this drawing in of the storyteller. If you remember back to when we were talking about the Starless Sea, it's like when Dorian was telling the stories from his book to Zachary. You get drawn in and coming back out is like shrugging out of a blanket burrito. You feel refreshed and renewed and you kind of stretch a little bit. Or you let yourself fall into the coziness. My dad used to read to me when I was a kid, every night. And there's something about being told a story. It's just so comforting and lovely. And so we have, in this instance, both telling a story about a storyteller telling a story to other storytellers. It's very meta. At this point, the patriarch of the Edema Rue asks Kiap where he's going, to which the beggar replies, Tinue. The way that this is framed makes me think that because they're at this crossroads, because this is kind of a metaphor in the first place, that I'm on the way to Tinue means I am in the process of accepting my death. How goes the road to Tinue, as the saying goes? So Terrace, the patriarch of the Rue, responds, We're going to Bellinay. Do you want to go with us instead? We'd be honored to have you in our family. The beggar's response, My blood is not yours, and I am not part of your family. To which Terrace replies, Why... Do we care about what blood you have? You're part of our family anyway. And that speaks to that found family aspect, that loving friendship, that building a life with people who aren't related to you, but who care about you and love you. The whole blood is thicker than water when it gets 
you know, bastardized and people misunderstand it. The original phrase was, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And so therefore, the found family, the people who care about you, who feel so strongly about you being their true family, their true loves, is so much stronger. That bond is so much stronger than one that is forged solely by who you were born to. And I think this also has the secret thesis of the book. Fundamentally, everyone has a story, and all of those stories matter. Everyone has intrinsic dignity, worth, a name. And it doesn't matter how humble that story might be, it is wondrous. And it is amazing, and it is a gift to be shared. And the telling of someone's story enriches both the teller and the listeners. So my encouragement to you listeners is think about what your story is and who you share it with. That's going to provide so much more value to your life than just about anything else you can do. And so the old man lived with them for many years before they parted ways. Many things he saw and many stories he told. And everyone was wiser in the end because of it. This is a thing that happened, though it was years and miles away. I have heard it from the mouths of the Adimaru, and thus I know it to be true. This is who Kvoth is, who he sees himself as, who he wants to be. This is who he sees his family as, the family that is Adimaru. This is how he identifies himself and where other people are in his life. We can see some of how he responds to Will and Sim, for instance. They are his family just as surely as his mom and his dad are. You know, these are people who have, without reservation, taken him in, provided him shelter, kindness, and given him a place to live when he had none, given him respite and shielding from an unseen foe, who have risked their lives for him. I think this is how he sees them. And it's really powerful. So then, our next chapter, we have a little bit of a come down from all of this. Will and Sim are a little surprised, because this isn't how most stories go. Right, if you're thinking about the three-act structure, or about, and this happened, and this happened, and at the end, this is what the surprise twist was, or anything that, you know, normal fiction writing teaches you. And I don't know about our listeners, but I can guarantee you that when I first listened to this, my thought was, wait a second, isn't the beggar supposed to be like Taberlin the Great? We're told to expect that his name will matter, right? And stories have keyed us to believe that there are certain names that matter and certain ones that don't. However, the thing that Kvoth is getting at is that Skiop matters just as much as Taberlin just as much as Lanray, just as much as any of these other great, heroic, tragic, famous names. His name matters just as much. And, you know, Will and Sim talk about how, in stories, old beggars are always someone powerful in secret, in disguise. Like, it's a great hero, some supernatural being, a fairy, what have you. And then Foth responds, in real life, old beggars are almost always old beggars. And then he says, and this is the thing that really hit home to me. Those are the stories that we tell other people in order to entertain them. This story is different. It's one that we tell each other. And it serves that purpose to talk about who we are. We're not trying to tell you what the world is. We are telling you who we are as a people what our values are. And then we get a little bit of Will finally touching on how he felt about the stereotypes surrounding his people. And then Sim kind of yes-ands on this. What in the heck was all of that about my people wanting to chain a beggar to their cart and treat him like a donkey? And here we have our Christopher Columbus was a rapist and a terrorist. 
history, real history, versus the revisionist crap that you get taught when you're, like, seven. Yeah, Foth points out that Aturans used to kill people if they found them living on the road. So houseless folks were fair game to be killed by the Aturan government. And the Adimaru especially were persecuted and were oftentimes hunted like foxes by the nobility. When Simon hears this, he understands, okay, I see why you might have that belief. I'm really sorry. And it's also sort of that wake up where Simon realizes just how much his privilege has shielded him from some very hard truths that people like Quoth have had to learn at a much earlier age. And then Quoth does state again, I'm sorry, this was a long time ago. This is not your fault. It's an old story. And so Will responds, it would have to be to reference the Amir. Will is trying to change the subject. Not working very well. No. Then we get a little bit of a discussion about the kernel of truth in some of these stereotypes. They know Basil, who is Vintish and is known for being somewhat superstitious. Sim traveled with a group of Adem on his way to the university, who only spoke among themselves and were kind of fidgety and restless seeming. And Will has known many Shaldim who are known to save a lot of money in their boots. And then a conversation about, wait, 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 you got your vocabulary wrong. Purses are where you keep money. Boots are what go on your feet. And Will responds, your purse is where you put the money you're going to spend, but the money you're going to save goes in your boot. The thing, though, is that I kind of get this almost Kermit face in my head about what Will is like. Simon, I know what a boot is. And then we get another idiom. Oh, so it's kind of like rainy day money. And then Will is like, seriously, I have no idea why you would say that. Why is your money being saved for a day when it rains? <laughs> like, what do you do with it on the rainy day? And then to cut off the bickering, Quoth reveals the hidden kernel of truth behind this that is important which is that if you accept the hospitality of a troop of Adimaru and they offer you wine before anything else, that means they're Adimaru. But don't take the wine. Insist on water. And when you do this, they will know you are a friend and that you know their ways. And they will treat you like family for the night as opposed to a mere guest. And the fact that Quoth is sharing this with Will and Sim is, I think, his way of sharing that he thinks of them as family. Then, sort of out of the blue, Sim asks, where would you go if you could go anywhere? I like Foth's response. Across the river. To bed. <laughs> that just seems so much like you, where you're like, okay, it's eight o'clock, I'm going to bed now. Yeah, you know, all of this drinking and dancing and singing is fun, but some of us got to be up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get drunk and I just get sleepy. <laughs> That's all that happens to me. But then, you know, Simon presses him a bit, but literally anywhere in the world, where would you go? He goes, same answer. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if you wanted to go on an adventure, where would you go? And Quoth's response is the Tallenwald, where tribe leaders are singers who can sing songs that can supposedly heal the sick and make the trees dance. He wants to see if this is true. And then Will, without asking, I'd go to the Feyen court. And Sim is like, but you can't pick that. That's not real. Uh, future knowledge us. Spoiler alert, it's real. For one of the other um, questionable sections of the book that gets mocked kind of often. I don't hate that section, though. I don't actually hate the Adima Rue thing either. I just get cringy over... The really dumb man-mother's stuff. Yeah, that, uh, that was pretty dumb. Anyway, let's keep going. But then when it's Simmons' turn, he doesn't know. He didn't really choose the university in the first place. He kind of fell into it because after his brothers inherit and his sister gets her dowry, he won't really have anything left except his family name, so this is just a way for him to make a place for himself in the world. And this makes him a little bit morose. So Sim is kind of in that sixth drink Amy mode, if you are familiar with Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's just sad. He's kind of taciturn and drawn in. And Will is kind of like, shut up! Stop it! 
And so let's go home, shall we? <laughs> How about we just forget that this conversation's a thing? Anyone up for trying to tackle that bridge now? And then he also quietly mentions on the side that, hey, this is not something that Sim likes to talk about, so let's not ask him about it going forward. Which is interesting because there is a parallel between Sim and Kvothe that hasn't been acknowledged yet until this point. This is Will, I think, playing the peacemaker. He knows Sim better than just about anyone. He knows what causes his friend pain and what causes his friend to make decisions that he regrets. And so he is pushing Kvothe to steer clear of this particular subject, which I get. And it's definitely something, it's that hidden core of sadness to Simon that I think is oftentimes hidden behind his boyishness. He's oftentimes presented as sort of a naive sort, as someone who doesn't know how bad other people have it, as someone who is just generally friendly. And it's this core of sadness, though, that truly drives him. It's this deep melancholy that he doesn't share with just anyone. So it's a rare bit of vulnerability that he's sharing this here with Kvothe, who is his actual family, the family that he actually loves, and that actually loves him back. Just wanting to touch on a little bit of something. There are a lot of people in the LGBTQIA community that have to rely on a found family because their family can't accept who they are. I'm not saying that people who aren't in the queer community automatically have a good family life or automatically have a good relationship with their blood relatives, but I'm saying that this happens a lot with LGBTQIA people. And I know for me, the people that I am the closest with are the people who I have explained my alphabet soup to, who I have been able to talk to about the abuse in my past, the reason why I don't particularly care for the holidays, the reasons why I have so many problems with anxiety and why I'm so particular about certain things, why I've had to do so much work to even get to a space where I don't have a breakdown over the holidays every time. The people that I trust and rely upon, none of them are related to me by blood. Absolutely none of you. And we chose you. I know. And I love it. We chose you gladly. There is something that is deeply nourishing about finding that found family. And I don't care what your orientation is, when you find people who understand you deeply and care about you and trust you, it doesn't matter what their lineage is, it doesn't matter what their initial relationship is to you, those are the people you cling to. Those are the people who will stick with you. And those are the ones that are truly family, the ones who insist that you aren't going to get left behind that you get to be with them, that you're a part of them. That is powerful stuff. So I encourage all of you to find who your real found family is and let them know how much they mean to you. It'll mean a lot. So with that, I believe it's time for you to share your Frenemos of the week. I'm going to choose Terrace. And the reason I am is because without reservation, without thinking, is this person a danger to me? You know, without looking at the disheveled, sad, broken down visage of our beggar in the story, Skiop. He's welcoming and kind. And while there might be sayings in Ventus that are, what can feed six can feed seven, they clearly, clearly say it and don't mean it because their actions speak so much louder than the words that they profess to believe in. There's no question. There's no trying to find the right words, the right saying, the right whatever to make themselves feel better within the Edimaru. There is genuine warmth and welcome. Clearly, they're not going to welcome people in 
and continue to give of themselves for people who are going to abuse their kindness. And that's where the whole, I'm going to offer you wine, and if you request water, I know that you know our custom. It's a secret code. It's a way of knowing who understands their hospitality and who is just taking advantage of it. The story is lovely. The point of it is lovely. Asking, hey, would you rather not be alone? We value you. We don't want you to go off on your own. One of the things that I noticed that was an interesting contrast between the way Terrace interacts with Skiop and all of the other people is that Terrace is the only one who actually asks questions of Skiop. Terrace asks Skiop who he is. He asks Skiop what his plans are. He asks him proactively, hey, come on over. He doesn't wait to be engaged. He doesn't need to be asked for charity. He is just charitable. He literally just says, hey, you look like you could use some food and some water and a place to stay. Come on over. We have enough. We don't have a lot, but we have enough. And it's this true generosity unasked for, and it's the human dignity that he gives to ski up to say, hey, who you are matters, period, just intrinsically. And this is something that nobody else grants him. It is really hard to ask for help. It is really hard to ask for help. It is hard to admit to yourself that you need help, and it is harder to ask another person to provide it. There is so much of that bootstrap mentality You got to do it for yourself. You have to pick yourself up out of the mud. There's a person there watching this who would be willing to help if you would ask. But in this case, Terrace is a person who is like, I see you suffering. Let me help you without being asked. Not many people just offer that kind of help. They wait to be asked. It's a rare trait. I think we could all do with being a little more like Terrace. I know over the last several years, we've started to see more problems with houselessness in our communities. And it's definitely easy to hope that they just go somewhere else. It's also easy to believe that they brought it on themselves. And it is very easy to fall into that not in my backyard or nimby attitude where oh it's all well and good that they have a place to stay but can't they stay somewhere else when i think really what we should be looking for are opportunities to say the opposite yes in my backyard you do need a place to stay and we have a place finding solutions within our community to make sure that Our neighbors all have places to stay, places to take shelter, places to get food, places where they can actually move beyond just barest subsistence. So I encourage you to get involved with your neighborhoods to find those sorts of solutions. There are a lot of people struggling to find places to stay safe, especially as we move here into these winter months. And we could all do with a little more of Terrace's attitude to be fearlessly generous, to say, yes, in my backyard. I will vote however many times I have to. I will talk to people and explain to people, hey, I understand that you have these negative stereotypes about people who do not have homes, that you believe that every single one of them, or at least enough of them, are a danger to you and your family, that you don't feel comfortable letting them shelter within a mile of your home. And I will just say, I've been homeless. It wasn't for very long. And to be honest, it was literally like all my stuff was in my car and I had to rely on my friends to let me sleep on a cot in their living room. But if you think that you don't know anyone who has been affected by this, you're probably wrong. And if you think that every single person who no longer has a place to go that has a roof is somehow 
a danger to you and yours. They probably thought that up until the point where they didn't have a home. And then they didn't have a home. There are so many people in the United States that are $400 away from losing everything. The homelessness or houselessness problem that we have been seeing increase over the past few years, especially like exponentially increase. It's like the nothing in the never ending story. It's still coming for you. You might be riding the wave ahead of it right now, but what if tomorrow you lost everything and your neighbor said, not in my backyard. I've volunteered at shelters for abused significant others and their children. I've helped babysit the kids while the parent was at parenting classes. These were temporary, like extremely temporary fixes, temporary places to stay. It was an apartment complex that they cycled through people every two weeks. If you care about the people who are affected this way, vote to have the abandoned shopping mall turned into homes to shelter for homeless people. Find a way to vote for jobs to be created, vote for shelters to be constructed, converted, or whatnot, to have people that are there to help protect the houseless community that live within that shelter. If you're worried that creating a shelter out of whatever and inviting everyone in without vetting them will lead to some people that you don't want having this shelter opportunity, then we need to find a system that does screening and find help for the people who are addicted, but also not lose our compassion for the people who just can't find another place to live. There are a lot of people who are one bad break away from losing everything and by that same token, there are also a lot of people who have nothing, who are just one good break away from being able to build something out of their lives. And sometimes something as simple as having a permanent address that you can put on a resume. Having clothes that aren't sodden. Having access to basic sanitation and internet access and things like that can be the difference between having to live on the streets and beg for subsistence and being able to actually hold down a job. A lot of people just don't simply have the opportunity. And when you look at some of the patterns they've had to develop, it is because of systems that have failed them and have held them down. These are people who could be normal members of society if society would let them. If the system weren't stacked against them. But I think that we've veered off of my topic I love the radical acceptance that Tara shows. Me too. That's what I want to encourage you all to have. When you see someone who maybe doesn't look as clean or as well put together as maybe society tells you they ought to be, look inside yourself and find that compassion for another human life. Absolutely. And it's all worth it. It is all worth it. It is going to make a better world for us all to live in. With that, I think it's time for you to tell us an interesting fact. All right. Today, we're going to be talking about, for our interesting fact, Alpha Centauri. Ever since I was a kid, I was kind of an astronomy nerd, Alpha Centauri was something of an obsession of mine. It's our closest neighboring star system at only 4.37 light years from Earth. And it's one of the few places where if there is life, we could actually detect it in time to realistically have some kind of contact. Namely, a message could take four years to arrive on a planet in the Alpha Centauri system, which seems long until you consider that that's nothing compared to some of the far more vast interstellar distances. Like, when we see light from Alpha Centauri, it's four years old. Whereas if I look elsewhere in the sky, that could be millennia old, or millions or eons of years old. Is eons of years a technical term? Yeah. Okay. We'll accept it. Not just eons. Eons of years. It could be eons old. Point <laughs> being... If I don't have my pedantry, what do I have? My love. But if I do have my pedantry, what do I have? My love.
Are we going to make the audience vomit twice in an episode? Hope you got your buckets. Point being, if we received a message from one of the more distant systems, the chances are that the people who sent it have been dead for millions of years. Or the creatures or whatever, the life forms. But not so with Alpha Centauri. So anyway, it's a triple star system consisting of two sun-like stars named Alpha Centauri A and Alpha Centauri B, and then a red dwarf known as Proxima Centauri. Meanwhile, there is a new telescope that promises to bring this intriguing star system and any habitable planets it holds into closer view. So this new mission is called Toliman, which was announced in a press release. So Toliman is the Arabic name for Alpha Centauri, the closest system to Earth, but it's also an acronym because everything is an acronym when it comes to space. Telescope for Orbit Locus Interferometric Monitoring of Our Astronomical Neighborhood. Yeah, it's a tortured acronym, so let's just call it Toliman for short. <laughs> Once in space, astronomers will use the orbital observatory to search for potentially habitable exoplanets around Alpha Centauri. So this international collaboration includes teams from the University of Sydney, Breakthrough Initiatives, Sabre Astronautics, and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Peter Tuttle from the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at the University of Sydney is going to lead this project. So there's two exoplanets known to orbit Proxima Centauri. An Earth-sized planet parked inside the habitable zone, i.e. that sweet spot within which liquid water is stable at the surface. And then there's a super-Earth located further out. Alpha Centauri A is suspected to host a Neptune-sized exoplanet, but astronomers aren't entirely certain. An exoplanet has yet to be discovered in orbit around Alpha Centauri B. There are other exoplanets that are still likely waiting detection, and that's where Toliman comes in. So, according to Jason Held, the CEO of Sabre Astronautics, Toliman is an exciting bleeding-edge space telescope that will be supplied by an exceptional international collaboration. And so it's going to be custom tailor-made for the mission, and its strong suit will be in making extremely fine measurements of the positions of the stars. So a key feature of the new telescope is a diffractive pupil lens. So by dispersing stellar light into flower-like patterns, the lens will make it easier for astronomers to spot wobbles caused by orbiting exoplanets. And once they locate an exoplanet, more specialized telescopes can be recruited to search for potential biosignatures in the atmosphere or surface. They're expecting to have the Toliman telescope in orbit in 2023, so that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm absolutely fascinated to see what they find out, and hopefully we'll be able to find something interesting. Whether there's life or not, I think this is going to be really fascinating. So, that's my interesting fact. Out of curiosity, do we have any idea if the uh, Russian um, satellite killer is going to affect that or the satellite that they did break apart into millions of tiny little pieces that are going to be detrimental to all of the things that are orbiting our planet? I don't know about that specifically. It's all going to depend on how high up Toliman is orbiting. Now granted, orbital debris could pose challenges getting it into that position, just knowing how we've got all of these floating debris clouds that are only getting worse and to be clear, we had the debris problem even before the Russians shot down a satellite. That's been an existing problem for some time now. It's something that's only been exacerbated as Elon Musk has launched his Starlink initiative, adding more and more satellites into the atmosphere. So it's not like the Russians invented this problem or introduced this problem. They've just exacerbated an existing one. And so, yeah, you can thank your local billionaire for that, too. So... That said, since it's going to be in a higher orbit, it's probably not going to be very much affected by it. But certainly having military actors in space actively seeking to destroy orbiting hardware could pose a risk. But that's another question. True. Sorry to be a downer, but that's the thing I know about space this week. Yeah, I was reading about that, but I didn't think that was really what I wanted to talk about. That's fair. Meanwhile, it's time for Thing of the Week, so it's your turn. Who or what are you going to recommend? You already know the answer to this. It is a much lighter topic than the ones that we have talked about so far. Stop. Ow. <laughs> Sorry. My recommended Thing of the Week is Steven Universe. My strong recommendation is that if you haven't watched it yet, talk to somebody who has. 
and get their recommendations for which episodes to start on. Because like a lot of other TV shows, it doesn't really start getting good and draw you in and, and all that stuff until a couple episodes in. You know, in this case, it might be like, you don't want to choose Frybo as your first one because that one is just kind of bonkers. But once you understand the world of Steven Universe, then it's perfectly fine. The pilot is fine. But in my experience, the people that love it, love it after having seen some of the things further on in the first season on through my favorite episodes, which are kind of in season three and four. But my description of this show is it is the best example of found family. It is the best example of just radical love and acceptance in a kid's show that I have ever seen that is still something that adults would want to watch. It is comforting and loving and it feels like when I watch it I have put myself in the fuzziest, warmest, most cozy, comfortable blanket and we got to share it with one of our dearest friends. Within the last month we got to start it again with them. And the amount of just love and sweetness and beauty and care and detail. I do call it the queerest kid show that I've ever seen. There are overtones that will hit most adults in the face about love and some bits of loving sexuality. There's intersectionality. There is just radical acceptance. There is a main character who is a boy who one of his defining characteristics is that he wants to protect in a wholesome, sweet way. He doesn't want to fight. He wants to be a shield against the bad. I think one of the things that hits me is that all of the characters in Steven Universe are very well fleshed out and you can find something to empathize with in every single one of them, whether they are generally friendly or if they are initially antagonistic. And there's something human that you can latch onto, even if they are alien. There is redemption to be found for pretty much every character, even if they were a villain initially. There, There's a lot of humor and a lot of, as our friend refers to Amethyst as um, a goblin. The characters are distinct and loving, parental, big sister, you know, little brother kind of situation. There's, you know, a quote, broken family aspect to it where Stephen doesn't live with his dad and his guardians kind of view his dad as a screw up initially, but then slowly really become closer to him as a character as a person as a family member as we delve into each one of the characters we get a really deep and loving and gentle backstory about nearly every one of them i love that the primary colors surrounding our main character who's little boy are pink and that he has a star motif and that he cries he still gets to be a boy, like he gets to have jokes about spit and about some of the other things that you would necessarily associate with stereotypical boy in cartoon. But I think it's really lovely to have a main character, a protagonist, who is so actively non-toxic. And a show that fights back against toxicity specifically, and when he encounters toxic influences he has ways to diffuse them and ways to help them find more healthy ways to express their emotions everyone is given that opportunity to find a better way yes it does go through all of the problem solving to help kids understand certain situations and how to resolve them but it does so in such a loving gentle and i would say mature way it gives the people who watch it real tools for navigating these kinds of difficult situations. I think part of it is that sometimes we don't always see ourselves in the best light. 
Steven Universe allows us to find redemptive moments for everyone. So even when we aren't feeling like we're the best people, we can find proof and evidence that we can actually be better than we think we are. That we can have constructive impacts and be very positive force in the lives of a lot of people. I think that's really powerful. I also adore the fact that this show has such a deep lore and so many callbacks and foreshadowing and it's obvious that it was thought out from start to finish. There's not a whole lot of like filler episodes and the filler episodes definitely don't feel useless. Some of them are a little weird. Frybo. A little weird. But there's points to all of them. Maybe it takes a little while before you understand why that was important, but you'll find out why it was important later. And all the episodes are 11 minutes long. That's true. It's extremely bite-sized. And I'd say that even when stuff doesn't necessarily advance the plot, it does advance character development. So you can have episodes that are very slight in terms of the actual events that occur, but they tell you something very meaningful about the characters themselves, even if it's just how they goof off. And that can be just as meaningful and fun. And yeah, it may not really move the plot forward, but it does absolutely tell you something very critical about who this person is that will come into play later on. Definitely worth a watch. And definitely watch it with your found family. We were introduced to it by three of our close friends, and we've been able to introduce it to others in our found family circle. It just makes me happy and smile and feel so just cozy. Absolutely. It is a comfort show. So with that, let's move on to our seven words. You had the books this time. What did you pick? Alrighty. So I did like the where six can eat, seven can eat as a saying. And there were a couple other things. Would you consider coming with us instead? That part of the story is true. But what I've chosen is kind of a cheat because it's the second half of a sentence after a comma. And tomorrow will take care of itself. I take that to mean don't fret about what comes tomorrow, especially the events that you can't predict or control. Focus on what you can do now, what you can do today. And I like that. I do too. I find it is something that helps me to remain centered, even when we face a lot of uncertainty. So I think that that is some excellent advice. So here's what I've got. These are some words from you. Surprise, surprise. These are words of love that I will always cherish and I love hearing. What do you say? Guitar shop weekend? <laughs> now, I know we didn't end up actually doing the guitar shop this weekend, but the fact that the offer was on the table meant a lot to me and still does. And I know that we will have a guitar shop weekend one of these days. And whether it happens today, tomorrow, three weeks from now, a month from now, any indeterminate amount of time in the future, the fact that that could happen is a joy because I love going to music shops with you. It's one of my great pleasures in life and it's eternally fun, hopeful exercise that we take together and it always brings out the best in you and the best in me. I love having an opportunity to go noodle around on a guitar that I can't afford. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I do too. Spoiler alert. Part of the reason I want to take you to a guitar shop is so that I can see what pedals you grok to. And I want to get you something really awesome for Christmas. And you have been told to memory hole that. Harumph. Harumph. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 39 through 41 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of The Greater Good. The greater good. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, 
please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show a little bit early, depending on when I get it edited, and bonus pods, including, da-da-da-da, we are going to start a series on the Sandman comics. Ooh, that's going to be a lot of fun. And as a special treat, I am going to release the first probably 10-ish minutes of the first episode of that on our regular feed to try to entice all of you to be part of our Patreon community. Sorry, I don't have a voice quite like Neil Gaiman's, but who does? Neil Gaiman. Naturally. Patrick Roth is a little bit because he's also one of those people that I would totally listen to narrate the phone book. He is a good reader. You can also find other things like art. I do posters once a quarter. And speaking of art, if you want us to send you a random piece of something every year or every quarter, I don't remember what it actually said. Something that I've made that we no longer want in our house but isn't actually terrible. It's kind of cool. There's also that. I know I made it sound so enticing, didn't I? (laughs) Way to give them the old hard sell, right? Eh. Anyway, as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! So what drink, Amy? So one drink, Amy, is a little spacey. It's a bit out of touch with what's happening around her. Two drink, Amy, a.k.a. loud Amy, shouts everything she says. Three drink, Amy, dances constantly, although she isn't able to warm herself up. Four drink, Amy, is a little bit of a perv, often making comments loaded with sexual innuendo. Five drink, Amy, is weirdly confident. Six drink, Amy, is just sad. Seven drink, Amy, has not been mentioned. Eight drink, Amy, rides horses. Nine drink Amy speaks French and thinks she is a genius. So six drink Amy. Yeah.